This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to talk about the multiplication of the loaves, a story that is told in all four Gospels because it made such a huge impression on the Apostles. The story has enormous ramifications for the faith in general and for us in particular. In the drama of the Gospel story, it's this watershed moment where the question of who Jesus is becomes even more urgent. And as we will see next week, it is immediately followed by a moment where each of the people represented here, the apostle and the crowds, have a critical, difficult choice to make. But first, we're going to start with what happened just before the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves, the decision for the apostles to take a much-needed break. This is from Mark 6. They drove out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and reported all they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. People were coming and going in great numbers, and they had no opportunity even to eat. So they went off in a boat by themselves to a deserted place. People saw them leaving, and many came to know about it. They hastened there on foot from all the towns and arrived at the place before them. So we're going to read the story of the miracle from John chapter 6, but I love that Mark chapter 6 covers the same ground. But you remember what happens in Mark. Jesus taught and healed and exercised tirelessly, doing a remarkable amount of work and tiring himself and his apostles out. And after that, he sends the apostles out two by two, and they do the mentally and physically exhausting work of heading out into strange lands with a strange message. Well, today, at last they learn that they will get some rest. But not just any rest. I love how theologian Matthew Ramage here at Benedictine College talks about how this is the kind of rest heaven is. Not a do-nothing time, but a rest-after-hard-work time. We can relate to the feeling the apostles have when they return from their mission and report to Jesus all the things they did. I dream of being able to do that with Jesus one day. Then Jesus tells them, come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Those beautiful words, now it's time to rest. Those words have launched countless retreats, and they've done enormous good for Christians over two millennia, as we learned that we are not made for continuous labor. These words are also critical for those who serve others to keep in mind. The Christian life only works when it is a series of breaks we take with God, followed by efforts we make for human beings. But rest is not what the apostles get in this case. As soon as they head to vacation, people saw them leaving, and many came to know about it. They hastened there on foot from all the towns and arrived at the place before them. On their break from work, they find even more work. But they do get a kind of rest. St. Bede wrote, quote, The great happiness of those days can be seen from the hard work of those who taught and the enthusiasm of those who learned, end quote. 
The apostles learn that real rest doesn't come from having nothing to do, but from helping others in gratifying ways. Lasting peace can come from getting breakfast ready for everybody or from cleaning up so people can spend their time doing better things or from finally fixing the things that need to be fixed around the house. Anyway, that's what the apostles seem to find out. It's not what you do, it's that you do it with Jesus. So the apostles are getting into the groove of serving, putting the flock first, when they see them looking like sheep without a shepherd. That phrase, they were like sheep without a shepherd, is one I think about a lot. That's what we Catholics are so often, sheep without a shepherd, people willing to be led, but with no one ready to lead us. The message here is clear. We should be like the crowds who won't let him or his church rest. We've already talked a lot about Jesus' plans being interrupted in Mark's gospel by a leper, by the Pharisees, by his family members wanting to see him, by terrified apostles in a storm, and by Jairus, whose interruption was interrupted by the woman with the hemorrhage. The message is unmistakable. We need to interrupt Jesus and demand to be noticed. And as apostles, his pastors in the church should not expect to get to rest while we need them. More on that in a second, too. Jesus is the lover of our souls who wants to make us whole, but it only works if we want his healing. So we have to step up and demand it. Jesus shows that he is more than willing to make a move toward us if we make a move toward him. So in a way, this gospel passage is like the whole incarnation in miniature. In the typology of the book of Genesis, God created mankind on day six, remember seven days of creation, and then he announced the original come away and rest a while when he rested on the seventh day, hallowing the Sabbath. And what happened next? We interrupted his plans with sin, and he had to leave his place of rest to come save us, necessitating what tradition calls a day eight of recreation to come. Today's gospel thus communicates a fundamental truth at the heart of mankind. God sees us as sheep without a shepherd, and so he interrupts his state of completion and fulfillment, his state of rest, to come and shepherd us. God left his way of life to come to us. But like the people who came on foot to meet Jesus in today's gospel, we have to leave our own way of life, the place where we are, to go and meet him where he lands. In the gospel, it wasn't difficult for the people to reach him on foot. They just had to run to the place they knew he would be, and it's the same for us. He isn't far off. He's nearby. He's in the tabernacle. He's in the sacraments. Or, as he assures us, he's in our room listening when we pray. But we have to make the effort to go to where he is. This is also a vision of Psalm 23, everybody's favorite psalm. Though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are at my side. Before we encounter Christ, we are in the dark valley of Psalm 23. The fathers of the church see this as a metaphor for the world that exists in the shadow of death, the realm of Satan. But they see the shepherd of the psalm in the body of Christ, the church. He leads us to restful waters, baptism. He gives us his rod because those he loves he corrects and his staff, which is our encounter with the cross and confession. Most of all, he gives us his Eucharist, the table spread in the sight of our foes with overflowing cup. The key is that none of this is automatic. In the psalm, he leads me, meaning I have to follow. He guides me in right paths, but I have to walk them. 
In the valley of the shadow of death, I can say, I fear no evil, but only if I walk through it with him. If we are there without a shepherd, we are literally unable to move off of square one. We are not safe and have no idea where to go. As St. Augustine put it, when you say the Lord is my shepherd, no proper grounds are left for you to trust in yourself. That's us. We cannot make it through this world alone, and so we should be eager to run to Jesus Christ, disturb his rest, and get him to show us the way to go. If the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. If he isn't, we're lost. All right, but now we're going to get to the miracle proper, John 6, for the rest of the story. Quote, After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he did on those who were diseased. Jesus went up into the hills and sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a multitude was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, How are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? This he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had Given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So there it is. The story picks up again with a crowd following Jesus at the moment he was seeking rest. And John's telling Jesus went up to the mountain and into the hills. And when he saw the large crowd heading his way, he said to Philip, where can we buy enough food for them to eat? He wants Philip to spell out the problem. And Philip does. 200 days wages worth of food would not be enough for each of them to have a little. But then a boy steps forward with five loaves and two fish. Notice two things here. First, even though Andrew says, what good are these for so many? He nonetheless has barely enough faith to think that bringing this boy and his paltry offering to the Lord is not a total waste of time. Maybe he has faith, but is afraid to admit it. Second, think of the boy. He's hungry for dinner and he has enough for himself, but he gives it all to Jesus. What was he thinking? More on him later. The mysterious way Jesus completes this miracle reveals to his apostles who Jesus is in a very personal way. Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes by having the people recline and distributing them through the apostles. It's a lot clearer in the other versions of it. He hands the bread to the apostles who then deliver it to the people. First, this shows something important to his fishermen apostles. They used to spend hours dragging the lake for a few fish, then, when they followed Jesus' instructions, they dragged a lot of fish from the lake right away. Now they see how God's grace can skip their work altogether and just deliver its fruits. Or, I guess, use their work in a different way. 
It's like a reversal of the curse of Adam. This is even clear in the multiplication of the bread. After the fall, God told Adam, Cursed the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Not only does Jesus effortlessly feed the crowd in the gospel, but he says, Gather the fragments left over so that nothing will be wasted. In the gospel, Jesus proved too much for his crowd of 5,000 families. And I say 5,000 families because in most versions of this, it says 5,000 men besides women and children. And that phrase essentially means 5,000 families. The gospel says Jesus gave thanks for the loaves. He very well may have used the ancient Jewish prayer, Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. That prayer makes clear that Jesus multiplying the bread is only a sped-up version of what God always does. In one way, multiplication of the loaves is the wrong name for what Jesus does here. There's something very strange about the miracle of the loaves that it's easy to miss. Church fathers, the catechism, and eminent theologians throughout the years call this story the multiplication of the loaves, so certainly that's not wrong. But, as Erasmo Leva Maricacus points out, the gospel itself never speaks of multiplication. Instead, the text carefully stresses the passing of the loaves from hand to hand. Leva asks, quote, In whose hands were the loaves, in fact, multiplied? Apparently, the bread grew in the distribution of it as a result of both Jesus' blessing and of the disciples' collaboration with him, unquote. St. Thomas Aquinas quotes St. Hilary, saying essentially the same thing. Quote, the five loaves are not multiplied into more, but fragments take the place of fragments, the substance growing, whether upon the tables or in the hands that took them up, I know not. End quote. St. Rabanus Morris, who we've heard from before, says Jesus, quote, creates no new food items, but having taken what the disciples had, he gives thanks, end quote. Frank Sheed gives his own theory of what is happening here in his book, To Know Christ Jesus. He argues that what happens in the miracle should be called the multi-location of loaves and fishes, like bilocation, only with food being in several different places at once. Sheed quotes this odd sentence in John's account of the miracle for confirmation. They filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves. So they filled 12 baskets from the fragments of the original five loaves. Leva explains why the gospel takes this approach. Quote, The word multiplication, smacking of magic, does not best convey the mysterious nature of the event, which in its reality powerfully illustrates the theological principle that where the fire of mercy is involved, the more that is given, the more there is. End quote. I like thinking of it as multi-location because then it becomes even better preparation for the Eucharist where the one bread appears in churches everywhere worldwide all at once. Be that as it may, this is a demonstration of how grace works, complete with a lesson which Jesus started with the parables. What the parables describe by analogy, the feeding of the multitude shows in action. Human beings can't make wheat or mustard trees. We can only plant seeds and wait. Even now, when we know the scientific principles involved, it is mysterious to us how a hard-shelled seed goes from something like a pebble to a sprout to a plant to food. In the same way, we need yeast into dough, and the rest is out of our hands. 
God created the world such that what little we have grows large. It's the same in our daily lives. On our own, we can't make anything swell or grow or be fruitful. Our petty efforts fail. Our best efforts fall short. Our selfishness leaves its mark on everything we try. Grace is the unseen helper that makes our efforts grow. This is what the alcoholic finds in AA when she turns to a higher power, what a married couple finds when marriage seems impossible and they turn to God in desperation. And it is what each of us find when we say, enough, I can't handle this. I need help, Lord. It is also what happens in a smaller way in the tiny difficulties and triumphs of every day. The Catechism says, quote, grace is a participation in the life of God, end quote. We act with Christ and he acts with us and every good thing is multiplied. Furthermore, John makes clear that the multiplication of the loaves take place at Passover time and in April, when the spring rains were multiplying everything everywhere. We know it was April because the grass is green there only in April. And the Gospel of Mark says in his cinematic way, quote, Then he commanded them all to sit down by companies upon the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. It's almost like a drone shot of what's going on there. And it ends by having to collect the fragments because Jesus made way too much. Well, every spring we see how God always multiplies things and always makes way too much, even in the natural realm. Think of it. Life on earth is too much. Too much undergrowth, too many vines such that they cover hedges, cats having too many kittens, too many birds chattering outside, too many rodents trying to get in, too many bugs crawling everywhere, or go back further. The Big Bang results in way more than was necessary. Too many galaxies, too many stars, too many planets. We see more than ever before with the new James Webb telescope. It's all way too much. But none of the extra is wasted. The plants replenish the air, the bugs become food for the birds, and the birds fall prey to the cats, and the too many stars fill the sky with wonder and inspiration in a vast nightly icon of God's great gesture of giving us way too much. But the generosity of our natural laws is nothing compared to the super substantial bread Jesus' miracle points to. Give us this day our super substantial bread, says the prayer. And we'll see exactly what that means mystically next episode. But we translate our daily bread for a reason. Jesus wants us to notice that he notices our daily needs. We get accustomed to thinking of God as someone in the background of our lives, a vague, holy presence hovering over the world. When we actually tell him what we need, it's usually something big that we can't get on our own. Reconciliation with our cousin. Certainty about our vocation. Health for an ailing parent. But we all know that everyday stuff, like lunch, is up to us. Well, this gospel presents a very different picture. Jesus is the one who notices that the people need to eat lunch just like he does in the Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. The lesson is that God knows everything we need and he will provide it for us, even lunch. At the same time, the meal he gives is not extravagant. Barley loaves are the poor man's bread and these little salted fish like sardines, the poor man's lunch, they aren't meant to satiate us, they are meant to tantalize us. He does this so we will trust him with more than bread. The old saying, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, 
is based on a truth about human nature. Surveys show that most of us, men and women, consider providing or receiving food an expression of love. God uses food this way too. From the days of manna in the desert to the Eucharist, he doesn't provide food to satisfy our desires, but to transform them. This is ultimately why God takes the apostles through this exercise in which he notices their hunger and demonstrates that they can't fulfill it themselves. God wants us to know that he notices what our bodies need so that we will trust him when he notices what our souls need even more. And God wants us to see that he gives us too much for our body so that we will trust him with our even greater hunger for love. That hunger seems too great for anyone to fill. God wants us to know that not only will he fill it, but that when it comes to the Eucharist, he remains the God who gives too much. And think of who is doing this and who the apostles knew him to be. This is Jesus. This is the one who told the devil he wouldn't make bread appear magically in the desert to feed his own hunger. Now he's making lots and lots of bread appear to feed other people's hunger. This is the sower who said good ground would give forth 60 or 100 fold. And now he's giving 5,000 fold from nothing. I want to end with a rundown of a larger message in this passage, a message for three different groups in the church today. Behind him is this vast crowd, sheep without a shepherd, hungry and helpless, representing the world today. In front of him are the apostles, representing the hierarchical church, who can't get their act together and can't scrape enough faith together to confidently trust in God. Then, right in front of him is this little boy, a stand-in for lay people like you and me. This gospel is a test for each. First, there is a test for the crowd, which we'll learn more about next episode. Their test is, have you had enough of being sheep without a shepherd? Have you walked through the valley of darkness long enough with no one to guide you? Do you realize that it's not working? That you need some direction? That you need his rod and his staff? That you need faith, hope, and life? And do we see the people in the world and realize that they need Jesus, that they need a shepherd? Do we realize that the things they rely on aren't working? Do we think we would be imposing on them by bringing them Jesus? Do we think we would be selling them short, constricting their life? Or do we think we would be freeing them? Do we think of them as an army we need to destroy in a culture war? Or do we see them as sheep without a shepherd? who need to be guided. Then there are the apostles, the church hierarchy. Will you interrupt your rest to serve people? Do you have faith that Jesus can reach people? Do you consider the sacraments an essential service, or is it something we can dispense with? The apostles fail the test in the gospel. They want to send the people to the neighboring villages to get food. They want to send them to essential services like Walmart or McDonald's where, while they get their much-needed rest. But sociologist Rodney Stark speaks about how the early church grew not because of the martyrs or Constantine primarily, but because of the way they responded to the early pandemics. Dionysus of Alexandria wrote, quote, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, end quote. 
The COVID-19 pandemic was another moment where the church could have made a huge impact if we had stepped forward. I love what Archbishop Nauman said. He's our Archbishop here in Kansas City, Kansas. In June 2020, at the height of the lockdowns, to show the importance of receiving the Eucharist despite danger, he cited the book, He Leadeth Me, by Father Walter Sizek, an American priest who spent 23 years in Siberian gulags, falsely accused of being a Vatican spy. Priests and prisoners made inspiring sacrifices to receive the Eucharist, he said, which at the time required fasting from the midnight before. He quoted Father Walter. Quote, I have seen prisoners deprive their bodies of needed sleep in order to get up before the rising bell for a secret mass. We would be severely punished if we were discovered saying mass, and they were always informers. End quote. Archbishop Nauman also mentioned the case of the 16th century Englishmen who studied in Europe for the priesthood and then were snuck back into England to be priests in hiding until they were discovered, imprisoned, tortured, and executed. Quote, These heroic priests knew that they would probably only survive a couple of years at most. When discovered, public execution awaited them for the crime of being a Catholic priest and celebrating Mass. Nevertheless, they were willing to risk nearly certain martyrdom so Catholics in England would have the opportunity to receive our Lord in the Eucharist. He added about our own time, quote, Some of the orders issued by counties and local municipalities had prohibited religious activities, in some cases even specifying the prohibition of funerals and marriages. These were clearly unconstitutional. Government cannot permit liquor stores, pet stores, and dry cleaners to continue to operate and not allow religious activities, end quote. So that's the test for those two groups. And then there's each of us individually. Each of us is that boy, the lay person, who has a little faith and a tiny bit of food to offer. The boy steps forward to Jesus, the God-man who sits in the center of all of this, and everyone is there to see. The fish he used are probably like the small, salted fish like sardines. The bread loaves he has are the cheapest kind, made from barley. But he has a good boy's heart and a good boy's love. He is like a boy giving a weed flower to his mom, thinking it's a beautiful bouquet. Or he's like a little girl who tries to give all her money to her grandma when she hears she needs money. He is a boy whose generosity can't possibly match the needs that are around him, but he is eager to give all anyway. This is the kind of generosity Jesus is looking for when he says to Philip, you feed them yourselves. And Jesus puts the apostles in their place when he makes exactly 12 basketfuls left over. That's a basket for each of the apostles, a clear hint, I think, that they should have come more prepared like the little boy did. But they didn't, and the boy didn't either, and neither do we. The boy turns with love and hope and faith to Jesus, and through his example, Jesus shows us that what we give him is nothing. All our good deeds and prayers and works are like crushed barley loaves and sardines the little boy has carried around all day. And when we give it, Jesus takes what we have, adds his divinity, and does amazing things. We're on the little boy's place, facing a crowd that doesn't even know what they want, and a church that doesn't even know what it has to give, and we have to decide to give absolutely everything to them anyway. Like the boy, we can each look to Jesus and ask ourselves, what will I give to the Lord? 
And what will he do if I give it all? What crushed barley loaves and sardines can I give? And how will he use them to create mountains of food for thousands of families and remind the apostles how to trust Jesus as much as a little boy, how to trust the divine sower enough to be part of his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.